in Parsha we read yesterday in Shmos, as well as in Parsha Svaera. We're going to read this week. So Moshe repeatedly mentions that the Jews plan to leave Mitzrayim for three days only. Uh, Hashem, tells, Hashem tells him that actually. Hashem tells him in Parsha Shmos at the meeting at the Sneh, the burning bush. So Hashem says that you will go to the king of Egypt and you will tell him God, God of the Hebrews has appeared to us and now our plan is we want to go on a three-day journey in the desert and we'll offer sacrifices to Hashem. So Hashem says, go to Paro, tell him you want to leave for three days. We have two more instances, one, one in the end of Parsha Shmos, that, that they said that, uh, that, that when they actually met Paro, all the way at the end of the Parsha, when Moshe and Aaron meet Paro, they said that uh, God has appeared to us, and now our request is, we want to go on a three-day trip in the desert, that's what we want to do. We want to offer sacrifices to Hashem, and Paro says, get lost. In this week's parasha, in Parshas Ve'era, so again, after Makas Arov, so Paro calls them back and says, what do you want? They said, what we want is, we want to go again, our, our plan is, three-day trip, and we're going to offer sacrifices as Hashem has instructed us. The Jews, of course, were planning on leaving Egypt. Uh, I haven't seen, I think, any of the commentaries. I think maybe I once saw somebody years ago who says that, that they actually did plan on only going for a few days, but the, virtually all the commentaries, all the Midrashim, all the commentaries agree that the Jews were going to leave Egypt. Hashem had promised Avram that they're going to leave at the end of 400 years, at the end of the, the 210 years. That Hashem said to, to Moshe, I'm taking the Jews out of Egypt, I'm redeeming them. He didn't just say they're getting a uh, three-day vacation. It would, it's virtually, virtually unanimous in our tradition that the Jews planned on leaving for good and were not planning on returning to Mitzrayim. So what is all this talk about, uh, what is all this talk about three days? Were they lying? Were they, uh, what, 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 what was this all about? Were they lying? For whose benefit were they lying? Why did Hashem have to resort to a lie? So this is something that, this is a question, a group of questions that is discussed by a number of, uh, a number of the commentaries, several midrashim, and numerous comments in the Rishonim and Achronim. We'll begin tonight by going through a number of the different approaches we find to this question in the various commentaries. Midrashim, we have a midrash rabbah, Shmos rabbah, that when the Jews said three days, why do the Jews say three days? Why don't they just say, we're leaving for good? That's our plan, we're leaving for good. So the, the, the Midrash Rabbah says it was a trap. It was, all about, it was all about enticing Paro to chase them and getting him to uh, be drowned in the Yamsuf. That, that, when, that when the Jews said three days and then they didn't return right away, the, the Mitzrayim said, wait a second, Hashem only, Hashem only promised them three days. Hashem, their God, they recognized, I guess, Hashem was powerful after ten Makos. Hashem is redeeming them for three days, and they're deciding to, uh, on their own, they're freelancing, they're, they're, they're leaving, they're taking advantage, and Hashem only asked us for three days. This is not part of the plan. So what exactly the Mitzrayim were thinking at this point, it's a little hard to imagine, but that's what they thought. They thought that their God only said three days, this is not part of the arrangement, and therefore that's what motivated them to chase the Jews. 
that's how they ended up in the Yamsuf. And that was, of course, Mida, Kneg, and Mida. Hashem wanted them to be drowned in the Yamsuf. They drowned, they drowned or tried to drown Jewish babies in the Yamsuf, in the, in the, in the Nile. Kalabain ha'ilod ha'yorot ha'shlichu. So Hashem did this. Hashem did this whole plan to manipulate Paro to get him to, uh, to enter into the, into the sea so that he could be swept away by the Yamsuf. Rav Menachem Kasher in Torah brings another Midrash, a Midrash Agada, that Midrash says, uh, just a terse comment, it says, they told Paro, we want to go on a three-day, uh, three-day trip. We see here that you're allowed to lie on matters of peace. The idea that we can lie for purposes of peace is, of course, a famous idea of the Gemara. The Gemara says that when, when the angels came to inform Avram and Sarah that they were going to have a child, so Sarah laughed and said, can't be, Vadoni's okay, my husband is too old. When Hashem reported the conversation to Avram, he said that Sarah laughed and she said uh, that she's too old. Why? That wasn't actually what Sarah said. It wasn't the whole truth, at least. So the Gemara explains, Mutter l'shanas shalom, even God is willing to is willing to shade the truth and alter the truth to avoid creating a, a, a rift between uh, husband and wife, to avoid, uh, to avoid hurting their shalom bias. So you see, the Gemara has other examples, but you see, the Midrash says, that's what we have here. This was a, a lie for the sake of peace. I'm not sure how it was peace. According to the, the Shmos Rabbi, it was all in order to kill Paro. It wasn't exactly for the sake of peace. I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what exactly the Midrash means by... This is reminiscent of a this is reminiscent of a comment in the Sefer in the Sefer uh, written apparently written by the Ben Chaim of Baghdad. He was asked about a case where a man died intestate, and according to Jewish law, the estate should be inherited by his daughter by his sons. But under Islamic law, under Iraqi law, wherever it was. The girls were going to get, uh, the daughters were going to get some portion of the estate. The question was, can they forge a will? Can they forge a will in which the father gives all his property to his sons in order to ensure that the money goes to the heirs according to Dintara? And he says, in principle, yes. In principle, yes. And even though it's lying, he says, well, you're allowed to lie for the sake of peace. There's no greater notion of peace than to uh, enforce the laws of the Torah. So this is, I guess, what the Midrash is saying, that to do Ratzon Hashem in order to accomplish what Hashem felt was just and right to get the Jews out of Egypt, somehow that's Mishanim B'divrei Shalom. We should note that uh, the Torah Lishma concludes, in principle this is Mutter, but it's a really, really dangerous thing to do, he says. It can create an incredible Chil Hashem, and it has potential, obviously, for extremely negative consequences. So before you actually implement such a ruling, you should be very, very careful and uh, think, think this through very carefully. And that's something we'll return to later in our share tonight. I'll call upon him the, while the Shmos Rabbah just says that the, that the purpose of this plan was simply to trap Paro and to trick him into entering the sea. The Midrash Agada says, gives a more uh, moral explanation. It says this is somehow included, not very clear, but this is somehow included in the, in the dispensation of Mikan Shemeshan and Bedivrei Shal. A number of the Rishonim, Mepharshi Apshat, a number of the Rishonim deal, struggle, grapple, touch on this question in one form or another. Why was, why was Hashem lying? Why were the Jews lying? Was he really lying? Why was, it, why was it appropriate? Why was it necessary? 
Rashbam. Rashbam explains very simply, doesn't seem overly troubled by the question. The Rashbam says that we find several times Hashem, Moshe, repeatedly asked for a three-day trip. And he says the reason simply was because that was, that was simply the, logically the most effective, the most uh, plausible way they could get Paro to agree to let them go. As an example, he says, we find when it comes to Shmuel, when he, we find when, when God commands Shmuel to go anoint David as the next king, the successor to Shaul. So Shaul was the current king. Shaul was going to be very unhappy with this. So Shmuel protests to God. Shmuel says, V'shoma Shaul v'haragani. How can I go do this? It's, uh, that's treason to, to go appoint David HaMelech as the king. Shaul will not be happy about this. Shaul will kill me. So Akash Baruch Hu told him, you're right, that is a legitimate concern. You're, you're right to be worried. Eglaz Bakar Tikach Biadecha, we're going to have a cover story for you. You are going to take a, a, you're going to, you're going to take a cow, a, a, an animal of some sort. You're going to have a ruse. You're going to have a, a cover story that will mask your true intentions. So Shaul will not know what you are doing. This, this interchange is frequently cited in different theological Musser contexts about the, the idea that Bitochen is all very well, but that doesn't absolve, even when God sends you, that doesn't absolve you of, uh, doesn't absolve you of the need to take prudent precautions. The Gemara brings this, we had in Sachem not that long ago in Dafyomi, the Gemara says that, the Gemara says that even though Shluchem Mitzvah ain't Nizokin, even though when you're doing a Mitzvah you're not going to come to harm, but in a case where it's Shriach Hezekah, in a case where the danger is likely, then, then you, are, you, the, you, are, you are responsible to take prudent precautions as, as per Shol and Shmuel. This comes up a lot in the COVID-19 discussions, even if you're doing mitzvahs like davening and so on, you still have an obligation to behave responsibly. Even, even uh, Shmuel Hanavi, who was acting literally on God's command, God had spoken to him, still he legitimately raised the objection, it's not safe, and Hashem said, you're right, you have to take precautions. I'll call upon him, the Rashbam brings this story as, as, as an example, another example, even when Hashem wants something done, Hashem doesn't just say, do it, Hashem says, if we have to lie to accomplish it, we'll do that too. If, if lying and, and subterfuge is the, is the best and most effective way of accomplishing our goal, then we lie. The Jews were trying to get out of Egypt, they, they felt apparently if they would make a, uh, an open, straightforward request, we would like you to uh, free us and, rel- and relinquish any claim you have to us. There was no chance Paro would agree, apparently the Rashbam understands. So Paro didn't agree anyway. Paro had a hard time agreeing even for three days. But, but, but the, that's, that's how the Rashbam understands, that the Jews, the Jew, this was the right course of action. Now, if they, if they couldn't accomplish it by being honest and straightforward, they were going to accomplish it by, by being dishonest, because that, that was the, as long as it's the right thing to do, then it is reasonable to dissemble, to, uh, to, to prevaricate, to that, that, that's fine as long as it is in the service of a legitimate goal. The Rashbam has a, uh, has a tantalizing comment. He says, there are those who explain these psukim differently. There are those who explain makros halalu al inyonim acherim. They explain them differently. Enam elatoim gemurim. They are completely in error. They're making a, uh, they're completely erroneous, these other explanations. Doesn't tell us what these explanations are and why he feels so strongly about it. But this is the pshat, the Rashbam says, that they were lying and it was, as long as it was in the service of a legitimate goal, that's fine. And those who explain the Pesukim differently are Toim Gemurim. The Ibn Ezra, Ibn Ezra also grapples with this, with this question, how could, how could Hashem instruct Moshe to lie? 
So Ibn Ezra first says that it wasn't actually an outright lie. That the language was, we're going to take a three-day trip. And they did. They did take a three-day trip. They were going to go to Harsinai, which was in a, uh, a three-day radius of Mitzrayim. Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, when he, when, when he explains these Tzukim in Shmos and Vaera, he has a uh, brief note trying to figure out where Harsinai is. He quotes different opinions among scholars about exactly where Harsinai is. He says that he says that the most early sources say Harsinai was Jebel Musa or Mount Catherine. The problem is that's a five-day journey, 200 miles from Egypt, he says. But uh, Arab Sukkim implied that Harsinai was uh, not more than three days. Right, Kaplan understands that, again, like Ibn Ezra, what they were saying wasn't an outright lie. They were planning on going someplace that was within three days. They may not have been planning on coming back, but uh, what they said was basically true. We're going to go on a three-day journey to a particular place within three days of Mitzrayim. And then, about coming back, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that later. But Rabbi, that... Rabbi, yes? Isn't three days in, in Chumash a connotation of just a time of travel? Hasn't that been used before? And, and sometimes it's more than three days, but they, they, they got there in three days, as opposed to, you know, taking longer. Isn't there some... I mean, just remember something about the significance of three days. Like, that's like a, a standard... So it, 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 it is true, the, the, the various commentaries on, on these parashias have pointed out that we do find three, day journey, three days journey in other places, we find that Yaakov, when he left Lavan, was three days away, we do find that three days seems to have been a, a kind of uh, significant distance, I, I don't know if people say that three days is just, uh, is just a, figure, a figure of speech and isn't meant to be taken literally, it's an interesting point, that there might be some who explain like that, but, uh, so, but, but some of the commentaries, at least to Ray Kaplan, and some of the commentaries are assuming that three days meant literally three days, even though, uh, yeah, but it's an interesting point. Is it possible to explain that three days was just a kind of figure of speech? Uh, an interesting idea, I'm not sure. So Ibn Ezra begins his comment by saying that it wasn't, it, it, was, it was lawyerly speech. It was, uh, they were telling the truth, although not the whole truth, so to speak. It was, uh, it was true, it was going to be three days, although not limited to three days. The Mitzrayim assumed that that meant they would come back after three days. Never assume. Put it in writing. Ask for, uh, be, 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 be more precise. Be more specific. So, Rabbi, yes? Wouldn't, wouldn't uh, what Rivka had Yaakov do to sort of deceive um, Yitzchak was sort of lawyerly talk that he did? Yeah, so, so, so I, I was going to bring this up. There are other places in Tanakh, with, in, in Chumash, where the Rishonim disagree about this type of... Uh, this type of you know, subtle and misleading use of language. So Susan mentions the story of Yaakov, where again, there are, there are Midrashim, there are some commentaries that say that when Yaakov said, Ani Esav Becharecha, he meant, Ani, I am someone, I am your son, I am Yaakov, Esav Becharecha, Esav is your, Esav is your, is your son. Similarly, in the context of the Egel, the Egel Azav, the golden calf, so the, so the, when Aaron said, Chag Lashem Machar, that we're going to, apparently he sounded like he was saying, we're going to worship the calf tomorrow. So the Ben Ezra struggles with this. Aaron would have said such a thing. So he says, some people say that it wasn't, uh, he, he didn't mean for the Egel, he meant for, he meant for, he meant for Hashem, that Moshe's going to come back. But Ben Ezra, I think himself, I believe, in that case, rejects that and says, words, you know, words mean what, 
normal people understand them to mean. They eat, that, that words mean what they mean in context. So to say that, 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 that that's not what you meant because uh, you, had, you had some kind of, mis- you had some kind of uh, arcane, esoteric meaning in your head, that doesn't take away from the idea of a lie. If, 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 an, if an ordinary listener, if, if, the, if, the person, if a normal person listening to what you said wouldn't understand, wouldn't understand your words like that, then that would be considered a lie. So here also, the Ben Ezra here is, is trying to say that it wasn't an outright lie, that, that it was something that, uh, that it was something that wasn't technically false, but obviously it leaves uh, the Ben Ezra is critiqued for this. I, I believe Nechama Leibowitz points out, or, or others have pointed out, that this is a somewhat unsatisfactory tarot, because uh, you know, it's not a game. We're, when, honesty is not a game. Honesty means that, 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 you speak, uh, that, that you speak what you mean. You speak the truth. If people won't understand your comments uh, as, as you want them to, then the fact that you understand your comments differently, that's not much of a, that, that's not a very high uh, degree of honesty. So then the Benezra goes on, though, and he says that, he says that the, then he brings the other idea, the idea we saw in the Midrash, that Hashem wanted this as a trap. He wanted them to chase the, the Jews and, and, uh, and be drowned in the water. And then he says that we, we find anyway Hashem did that. He had them retreat toward Piachiros to give the impression they were lost. The Pasuk says that explicitly, that the Jews, uh, that the Jews, that the Jews maneuvers in the beginning of Bashalach were meant to uh, give the impression they were lost. Then the Benezer apparently, uh, apparently implicitly concedes the weakness of his approaches. That at the end of the day, he, he implicitly seems to concede that th- th- these are not the most satisfying explanations. He says, we have no, we have no business uh, second-guessing or criticizing the, the acts of God. Everything God does is with wisdom, even if the Chacham don't understand them. At the end of the day, he kind of appeals to, uh, to trust in God, that even if we don't fully understand what God was doing here, he says, we should just trust that there was some uh, rationale, that there was some justification for it. So he so Ezra proposes two things. First, he proposes it wasn't 100% technically a lie. And second, it was for, it was, there was a good reason for it. The reason was because they were attempting to, as the Midrash says, they were attempting to trap the, attempting to trap the, the Egyptians. But, Richard, I don't understand the Midrash at all, because three days would put them way beyond the Yamsu. So... I never understood the magicians you're accepting because people seem to have been relying on it. I'm certainly not understanding it. So, so Hadas is asking that the that three days would have put them well beyond the Yamsuf, so what were they still doing within three days wandering around before they hit the, the Yamsuf? Well, no, but why did people think that they weren't coming back? They thought they were, the Midrash saying that the whole point of this is to make Mithrim chase after them, but they got there way before the three days, so it doesn't seem... Well, the, the, the reason the Mitzrayim thought they were they were fleeing, I think, was because at the end of three days they they, they weren't coming back. They they they, they were they were still uh, wandering around and were failing to return. That's why I thought that the Mitzrayim was supposed to believe that they had been betrayed and that they were and that that, that, that was supposed to, I think, arouse the Mitzrayim, the the ire of the Mitzrayim that the Jews were uh, that the Jews had lied to them and, and tricked them. Why did they, what do they think they were still doing so close to Mitzrayim if they were really making a run for it? Uh, that, that I'm not sure. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know exactly. I'm not sure exactly. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how the how the thought process worked, but yeah, I, I, I take your point. Rabbi, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm really puzzled by the three days and the assumption it means 120 miles. Um, and I'll speak from personal experience. I walk through about three miles an hour. 
you extrapolate that out, it's, you know, that's everyone walking, you know, 12 or 13 mile hours a day steadily, all those hundreds of thousands of people uh, for three days. And uh, which is quite a challenge given the age you can have animals and everything else. Um, so it, I, I can't but think that it must mean a, a distance somewhat closer and it would have to have been understood and it didn't specify that they were going to Arsenai or a mountain. Okay, so an interesting point. That Howard is Howard is challenging the assumption that forty miles a day is a reasonable pace for an entire nation of uh, young and old children, animals, property, baggage, and so on. Yeah, so I, I haven't really given that that much thought. So that it is actually a Gemara. The the, the the Gemara actually talks about the the pace a person walks per day. The Gemara says, I think that uh, that the pace a person walks a day is forty mil. Is uh, is um, is is um, not, not is, yeah is, is forty mil a mil is less than a mile a, a, a mil a mil is somewhat between uh, you know, three or four thousand feet but uh, yeah so forty miles a day does seem a little bit high I, I can see that okay yeah so I, I'm, I'm not going to get too, too too much more I'm not going to get much more deeply into that I haven't really uh, I haven't really looked into the matter in depth but yeah we can challenge exactly how many miles a day is is a reasonable pace. So I want to just move on a little bit. We'll, we'll take more questions soon, maybe. But uh, so Rabbi Yosef says something very interesting. He says that in the beginning of Pashas Bashalah, he says that, Hash, that, that Hashem told Moshe, instruct the Jews, turn around, reverse course, and start heading back toward Mitzrayim. So mo- most of the commentaries explain that was part of the trap, as Ibn Ezra mentioned earlier. They were supposed to give Pyro the impression they were lost. Bechar Shar says something a little different. He says that part, the, the reason they were supposed to turn around is in order to keep their word. They promised they would return toward Mitzrayim. So Vyashuvu, Bechar Shar says, Amy wrote this to you by dime. I don't want you to break your word and just run for it. You, you said three days. I want you to turn around and start heading back toward Mitzrayim and, and keep your word, he says. However, I will cause Paro to. Uh, to misinterpret your actions, to start attacking you. Once he attacks you, you can obviously you obviously don't have to keep moving toward him when he's uh, approaching you, uh, ready to strike. Once once he declares war on you, you can certainly run, and he'll chase you, and then he'll die in the Amsif. But you you have to do yours. You have to do your. You have to live up to your commitment. You have to return toward Mitzrayim because any road to you by done. After all the Mitzrayim had done to you, you gave your word. I want you to keep it. I want you to turn around, he says, and start heading back toward Egypt. Again, he doesn't say that had everything gone well, that it was a likelihood they would have actually ended up back in Mitzrayim. Hashem said, I'll take care of that. I'll make sure the Mitzrayim, the Mitzrayim act uh, in a way that will result in their destruction. But at least uh, this much, Bechar Shar says, that you should head back toward Mitzrayim because, that is, uh, because that, that's what you need to do morally in order to, uh, to live up to your, your commitment. Rabbeinu Bachia Rabbeinu Bachia says something very cryptic. It's hard to know exactly what he means. But Rabbeinu Bachia says, back on Parsha Shmos, he says, Chas v'shalom, that the request for three days was armak de levroach. Chas v'shalom, that they were lying, that they were, that they were trying to deceive the Mitzrayim. Ella, he says, three days was to get the mitzvos. And then he's, it's very unclear what he's trying to say. He says, like, Baruch Hu wanted to induct them into the mitzvos gradually. He gave them first the mitzvah of Shabbos, later mitzvahs later, and so on. 
So he, it's very hard to understand what he's trying to say. He does seem to be, uh, he does seem to reprehend the idea that the Jews would have lied, that they would have, that they would have outright lied to Paro. Instead, he says the goal was to get mitzvahs gradually. So how does that answer the question? How does that explain why it wasn't a lie, even if he planned on giving more mitzvahs later at Harsinai, which was much later? How does that explain why it wasn't a lie, So it's hard to understand what he thinks he's accomplishing by saying that there was a, that there was a religious gradualism going on here, that he wanted them to get the mitzvah step by step. He starts by saying, though, that this was a, a subterfuge to enable them to flee. That would be morally unacceptable, he says. That would be something that God would do that. Why it wasn't that, how he's resolving that, is very unclear. But at least in terms of the question, he seems to, unlike Rashbam and others who have no problem, Eglas Bakar, that you do what you have to do, you do that truth has to be truth has to be set aside in favor of uh, greater goals. Uh, Rabbi Bachya says, nope, Chas Vashalom, that they would do that. What they did do already is uh, what they did do is is ra- rather unclear. But that was the that was the that that's what he says. The Ran So, so, so that's all right. You, 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 don't, you don't remember who says that, do you? So, it's, yeah, so, 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 so Jonathan is mentioning a very interesting idea that, that in theory, they, they could have accepted a three-day three a, a three a, 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 a limited three-day trip because that would have established that service to God, that religion is more important than, than slavery, that God is above Paro, that Paro has to, uh, that Paro has to, uh, Paro's not the boss. Instead of me, Hashem, Hashem, Bakolo, Paro says, I have to render to God what is God's, and that itself would have ultimately resulted in the in the destruction of uh, of the, the the regime of slavery. It, it, it's an interesting idea. It, it, I'm not sure. Again, I'm not sure how well it reads into the conclusion of Rabbi Bachi's remarks about about the, the Avodas Hashem and so on. But yeah, it's, it's possible that, that that there's such an idea going on. Rabbi Bachi again, his comments are pretty cryptic, hard to know exactly what he means. But that's another interesting idea that. In principle, they, they could have accepted a three-day trip, because even, even though they certainly would have been satisfied with that in the long term, but that could have resulted in the unraveling of the, of the, of the system of slavery. Okay, so we find more discussion in other Rishonim, in the Ran, in the Drushes Haran, the Barbanel, the Akedas Yitzchak, the Arachayim. They, they, they work with various permutations of the same ideas we've been, we've been considering, that uh, the Mitzrayim deserved it, the the, the Ran says it was simply to trap, the, it, the goal was to get the Mitzrayim into the Yamsuf, like the Midrash says. Abar is not happy with that. He says, 
God doesn't have to resort to ruses and deception to do that. If that's what God wanted, if God simply wanted to, to drown them in the sea, he could have done that by being honest and open. He could have hardened Pyro's heart. He could have done it some other way. It's, uh, it's beneath God, he said, to, result, to, to resort to that type of, uh, of deceptive behavior to accomplish what he wants, even though, again, Rashbam says he did that in the context of Shmuel. But uh, here, the, the Barbanel says that that wouldn't have been the, the way to go. Barbanel himself says that the idea is that he wanted to show people how black-hearted the Mitzrayim were. Even three days, Pyro couldn't give. Pyro was such a Russia, he couldn't even give them three days. That, 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 uh, of, course he would, of course he wouldn't have given them whatever they would have asked, and of course they wanted more. But Hashem was making a point. Hashem was saying, look at Pyro. The, 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 the people have been slaves for hundreds of years. He can't even give them three days off. Three days. They weren't even asking for, I don't even know if they were asking for paid vacation. It could have been unpaid. They weren't getting paid anyway, probably. So it was uh, three days vacation for religious, religious leave he couldn't give them. That's, that's how the, that's how the, Abarbanel explains it. The Arachayim explains that there was an element of Mida Kneg and Mida. The, the Gemara says, we had this in Sachem recently also in Dafyomi, the Gemara says that we, we eat murder because the Shtibur de Mitzrayim, it began gently, uh, began rach and so kasha. It ended up uh, much tougher. So the, Hashem wanted the Mitzrayim to end up the same way. He says that the, he says that the, 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 the Mitzrayim, they inveigled them in. They started by saying that, the, that just do this and just do that, and they ended up uh, in a monstrous regime of slavery, he says. That's how the Jews, uh, that, that's how the Jews wound, up, wound up leaving. They first said three days, and then and, and lend us your stuff, and then they, and then they said, uh, and they ended up uh, leaving for good, and the Mitzrayim chased them and ended up in the Yamsuf. It was all part of God's plan for various, uh, various reasons to do this to Paro, even though it wasn't strictly true, he also says, like the Benezra, it wasn't an outright lie, and so on. And uh, one of the things he invokes is he says that, in, in terms of the fact that they stole the Mitzrayim's money, we covered this in a share a few years ago, in terms of the fact that they took all the, the money from Mitzrayim and didn't give it back, they borrowed stuff and didn't give it back, he says that was fine because they were entitled to, the, entitled to it for all the... For all the as reparations for all the bad behavior of the Mitzrayim toward them, for the forced labor of all those years of Mitzrayim mistreating them. He brings Yaakov. Yaakov behaved, uh, behaved deceptively toward Lavan. He engaged in a kind of arma with the sticks toward Lavan. And he brings the Pasuk of Imikesh Titapol, that Imnavar Titabar, Imikesh Titapol, that David Amalek says in Tehillim, that we behave, uh, we behave in an upright way with people who are upright, but with the froward, we behave frowardly, we behave uh, crookedly, we behave in a manner of ikesh, in a, in a twisted and deceptive way. It's legitimate to behave this way with regard to people who are coming at you with a crooked, with a crooked uh, frame of mind as well. We covered that also extensively in previous years, the, the, the idea that halacha sometimes justifies, uh, justifies engaging in sheker to, with, with someone who is behaving in a, an unfair way toward you. And that, of course, ultimately is, is, is another justification for the whole behavior of the Jewish people here as well. They're under no obligation to be truthful and above board with Mitzrayim. Why should they? I mean, the Mitzrayim have been engaged in, in, in enslavement and torture and genocide and murder for all these years. Why on earth would you think the Jewish people have any, any further obligation to behave, to, to behave with candidness and uh, with candor and with integrity toward the Mitzrayim? They're absolutely not. They, they can just walk out because of imikesh uh, titapol. The couple of, there, there are a couple of final things I want to say on the subject of uh, 
be, in the subject of making false statements or, or even false oaths in the context where, where, where you're being oppressed and you're simply doing it, uh, you, you're, you're making a promise in bad faith or you're breaking a promise because the, the whole thing is, uh, is, is under, the, under pressure of oppression, there is a, there, there is a remarkable, remarkable passage in the Sefer Hasidim. Sefer Hasidim says that there was a certain Tsar, a certain local nobleman, who was Rali Yehudim Shabiro. He was behaving badly towards the Jews, and they wanted to leave. They wanted to flee his jurisdiction. So he sees them. He sees them. He uh, jailed them. He says, I will not release you until you promise that you will not leave. You have to promise me that you will stay within my jurisdiction. So Rebuhudah Chassid wants to know, do, can the people promise in bad faith and then hightail it out as soon as they're clear of his dungeon? Can they simply, can they simply make, a, make a promise and not plan to keep it and then say the promise was under duress, you had no right to do this to us, we don't have to honor our promise, we're just going to leave and we're not going to keep our promise. Can they do that? Says Rabbi Huda Chassid, no, they cannot. They are not permitted to promise in bad faith like this and then not keep their promise. Why? He says, even though you can be Matur even though in such a case we would allow, uh, we would allow a Taras and Dharm, you can't do this, he says, for two reasons. First reason is Chil Hashem, that, that if they would run and then they would start telling him halachic arguments uh, that we, we believe in a Taras and Dharm and we believe that a promise under duress is not binding, so that would be a Chil Hashem. Second reason is, he says, he will no longer trust Jews who make promises to him when he is oppressing them because he knows that they consider their promises to be, uh, to be uh, retractable in such cases. And if he ever captures a Jew again, he won't trust his oath, and it'll, that'll make life very difficult for Jews in the future. And therefore, he says, you cannot do this today. You cannot, even if Meikar Adin, he's assuming Meikar Adin, they would be allowed to promise and then break their word. A, it would be a Chil Hashem. B, it would cause the, cause the Tsar to fail, to, to refuse to accept promises from Jews in the future. What should they do, he says? What they should do is they should appeal to a higher authority. They should attempt to find this fellow superior, the king, or a nobleman who is higher on the hierarchy of nobility to, uh, to overrule this guy and to get them out. But they shouldn't, uh, they, they shouldn't escape by means of a bad faith promise. Again, two arguments. Why? One argument is Chil Hashem. The other argument is that it, it, it will not be good for the Jews in the long term because the Tsar will stop accepting promises. So the, the, the idea that the Tsar will stop, will stop accepting promises is an issue I've, I've long been fascinated by. The, Thomas Schelling writes about this in, his, uh, in, in a classic paper of his that, that, that he says he thinks was the reason he won the Nobel Prize. He didn't know much about game theory at that time, he said, but this was an early paper where he touches on the ideas. We have the prisoner's dilemma. We have, we have the case where two people are, uh, are, both, are both arrested. If either, one of them, if either one of them rats out the other, then if one rats and one doesn't, then the, the, one, who, the, the, then the, one, who, the one who informs gets a you know, mild sentence. The one, who, the one who doesn't inform gets a heavy sentence. If they both turn state's evidence, they both get uh, significant sentences. If they both... Uh, if they both, uh, if they both, uh, if, if they both, do, if, if they both stay firm and don't confess, then they're going to get uh, lesser sentences. Now, now we can structure the we can structure the the 
the details of their sentence in, in such a way that, that, that each, person, each person will always be better off by, by informing, on his, informing on his friends. So, for example, the, for example we can, we, 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 we want, we want, in terms of the actual numbers, we say that if one testifies and one, and one does not, then the, the one who testifies goes free, and the one who remains silent gets one year. If they both remain silent, then they each get a month, and if they both rat, each one gets three months. So, so in such a case, you can show that if I don't know what my friend is going to do, putting aside any moral considerations, it's always going to be better for me to testify because, uh, b- because I'm always going to get less than, uh, than I'm always going to get less by testifying than by remaining silent. And the and both parties both parties reason the same way, and then both parties end up in jail for if if if, if both parties testify then the, they both get three months, while if they would both uh, remain silent, if they would both remain silent, they would both get one month. So obviously it is in their best interest to somehow both coordinate and remain silent, but the paradox is that in practice each one is going to testify, because not knowing what the other guy is going to do, it is given what, whatever the other guy is going to do, he's better, off by, uh, he's better off by testifying, by betraying his friend. This is the, the classic game-theoretical paradox of the prisoner's dilemma, where the, the paradox is that they would, get the, the, they would get a better result if they could both coordinate and agree to, uh, agree to, uh, to, to not cooperate with the government, but because they have no way of effectively coordinating, they're both going to end up being, uh, they're both going to end up betraying, and they're both going to end up being worse off than they would if they could somehow cooperate. The connection to our story is that uh, this is the problem I always, I always found interesting, you have, a, uh, you have a witness to a crime, and the murderer, the, the murderer sees the witness. The murderer says, sorry, I have to kill you because I'm afraid you're going to testify. So the witness says, I promise, I won't, test, I, I won't do it. The murderer says, well, once I let you go, then you're not going to keep your promise. So the, I can't trust you. Says, no, no, I promise. I, 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 he wants to promise. He wants to give a binding promise because he knows otherwise the murderer will kill him. The problem is, because the halacha is, because morally the promise won't be binding, the murderer has no choice but to kill him. If there would be some way they could each guarantee each other's cooperation, they would do that, but they can't. So the, murderer, so, so the murderer has to commit a second murder, which is not in his best interest. The witness gets killed, all because there, there, there's no way of, of guaranteeing each other's cooperation. If there would be some way of, uh, if there'd be some way of, uh, of creating a binding premise, that would be to everyone's advantage. Unfortunately, there isn't, and therefore, the, and therefore, the, therefore each of them ends up in a worse-off position than they would be otherwise. Schelling talks about how the right to be sued itself is, is, is a value for, cor- for corporations. The right to be sued enables corporations to, to commit themselves, to bind each other in ways that, 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 that can produce cooperation, and actually, paradoxically, it's actually good to be able to, to coordinate, even if it involves negative sometimes, it's actually helpful to be able to, to, uh, to, you know, to place yourself in a position of, to, to bind yourself in, in certain ways. So that's, that's really the issue of Yudah Hasid is saying something similar. He's saying that, he's saying that unfortunately, if, if promises were not binding, it would be worse off for everyone. The, the, the sour wouldn't release you, you wouldn't be released. So the promise does have to be binding. He just says that the, the, the reason you have to keep the promise is because otherwise future Jews are going to be in trouble. Therefore, the, even, if, even, if it's in your short, even if it's in your short-term interest to give a bad faith promise and run, in the longer term interest, what we call the iterated prisoner's dilemma, where it can happen more than once, it can happen to other people, the, the halacha therefore is going to be that you have to keep your promise, because even though in this particular case, viewed in, viewed in the short term, viewed in and of itself, 
it would be perfectly moral and rational to break the promise. In the long run, it is not a good idea because it will result in, it will result in uh, overall, it will be worse for the Jews, more Jews will be in trouble, and, uh, and therefore it's not a good idea. We have to have the notion of binding promises, because otherwise, in the absence of a binding promise, it'll just be worse for, worse for everyone. The guy's jails will fill up and Jews will be in trouble, therefore, therefore promises have to be binding. The other argument of Chil Hashem is a very interesting argument as well. The idea that he's a Russia, the, the local duke is oppressing Jews and throwing them in jail and making them promise that they stay. But if they break that promise, it would be a Chil Hashem. And the, it would be a Chil Hashem. And Chil Hashem, the most important value in Judaism, Chil Hashem, there's, there's nothing as, as, as severe as Chil Hashem. Chil Hashem forces them to keep their promise even when made in such, a, uh, in such an outrageous circumstance. This goes back to our story of Mitzrayim as well. The Jews are, the Jews are in Mitzrayim. The, the Mitzrayim are oppressing them for hundreds of years. They finally, as a, as a subterfuge to escape, they say, we're leaving for three days, and then they run. And now the question is, morally, have they done anything wrong if they decide not to honor their promise? If they say, bye, Para, we're not coming back. One would argue, of course there's nothing wrong. As Rishonim say, well, what, why do they owe any duty of honesty, of integrity, of, uh, of keeping their faith to a person like Paro? to a nation like Egypt, who they've behaved so monstrously to them. Yet we see in Rabbi Yudah Chassid, there is a notion of Chil Hashem. There, there is a notion that Jews don't keep their words. Would Paro actually have thought that the Jews are dishonest and the Jews are uh, conniving for leaving like this? Hard to know if Paro had that much chutzpah, that much... Uh, it's hard to imagine why the, why the Duke in Europe was such, a, uh, was such a moral degenerate that he would actually think it's a Chil Hashem if Jews don't keep their promise after he was trying to put them in jail. I guess back then they, they took oaths very seriously. An oath was something that somehow, at least in the non-Jewish mind, an oath transcended any kind of, uh, any kind of normal moral obligation. And somehow the, the, the non-Jewish nobleman would feel that if a Jew makes an oath and doesn't keep it, that's a chil Hashem, even though maybe he thought he had the right to oppress Jews, the Jews killed his God. I don't know what he thought exactly, but uh, whatever he thought, very few people think that they're Rishayim, so I guess he thought he had some justification for doing what he was doing. That's what Yudah Chassid says, besides the fact that it would be bad for the Jews in the future, it would be bad for the Jews in the future to have, uh, for their oath not to be accepted. So Yudah Chassid says that the, besides that, we have the issue of Chil Hashem. It would be a Chil Hashem for a Jew to make a promise and not keep it, and therefore the Jews have to look for other means of escaping, but they cannot, uh, they, 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 they absolutely cannot break their word. The Dach of Emden does not agree with this, with this Yudah Chassid. Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, Chasidus Yisairehizu. That's, uh, I guess, a kind of a play on words of the, the, the work with Sefer Chasidim. Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, it's good to be a Chasid, but this is Chasidus Yisairehizu. This is a bit much, this is excessive, he says, that it, it, the Shavuah is worthless, the Shavuah is void, the Shavuah was given under duress, he says. You don't need a Taras Nadarim. What about Chil Hashem, he says. There's no Chil Hashem. He says exactly this point. The, the, the non-Jew knows, he says, that that the Shavuah is not worth uh, the paper it was written on. It's not worth the breath uh, it took to utter it. He knows that he forced you to take the Shavuah. It's a Shavuah's onus. Rebbe understands that, that the non-Jew is not so ridiculous. He, he understands perfectly well that when he uh, locks you up and forces you to give your word, he understands that your, word is, uh, the, that, that your word is worth nothing and that you have no moral obligation to keep it, and there will not be a Chil Hashem. He doesn't, he doesn't address, I don't think he addresses Rebbe Yudah other argument, that for the long term, it's uh, that you know the prisoner's dilemma is fine when you're looking at a at a short term situation. It, it's 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 rational to uh, 
to betray and not keep your word, but, the, but in the long term, in the iterated prisoner's dilemma, it's, it's actually good to cooperate because it, it'll lead to better results for everyone down the line. That's, uh, that's a practical question, either it will or it won't. Rabbi Yaakov Emden is, uh, is not dealing with that, but he argues that in terms of, the, in terms of Chil Hashem, he doesn't think this would be a Chil Hashem. The truth is, however, as Rabbi Reuven, as Rabbi Reuven Margolius notes, there are Gemaras that deal with this question, Gemaras and Rishonim that deal with this question of whether one is obligated to keep an oath that he made under duress. There is a Gemara in Gittin. The Gemara says, in the beginning of Yeshua, we have the story that the, that the Givonim, the Givonim were a, an, an indigenous nation of Canaan, so Yeshua was going to, going to attack them and destroy them and take over their, their land. So they, they were scared. So they masqueraded as travelers from a, uh, from, a far, from a faraway country who came to treat with Yoshua and make peace with him. They had an elaborate ruse. They, they dressed up and they, they, they disguised themselves as travelers from afar. And the Jews made a treaty with them and swore that they swore peace to them. Then it turned out they had lied, that they were locals. And the Jews never would have made peace with, uh, with a local nation. God said, destroy the Canaanites. So the, the Torah says, nevertheless, uh, the Navi says, the Jews did not smite the Gavonim. Why? Because they, they, they had sworn an oath, the leaders of the people had sworn an oath to the Gavonim, and they would not break their oath. So the Gemara, the Gemara explains, according to one opinion at least, the oath was not actually binding. The oath was given under false pretenses. The, the, the oath was given, uh, they, they had lied, they said, and that was not true. So the oath was actually void. The oath had no, no, no binding power whatsoever. So why didn't the Jews kill them? Because of Kiddush Hashem. Like Rabbi Yudah Chassid, it would have been a Chil Hashem, that people wouldn't have fully understood this, people wouldn't have understood that the, that the Jews were entitled to disregard the oath because it had been obtained under false pretenses. So the Gemara says exactly what Rabbi Yudah Chassid said, that it would have been a Chil Hashem, people wouldn't have understood this, and therefore, even if the oath was not binding, they had an obligation to, to uh, defend the honor of God and not desecrate it, and therefore they could not act against their oath. Rebekah of Emden says that in, in Rebbe Yudachasid's case, it wouldn't have been a chel Hashem, because the, because the Sarah understands that the oath was given under duress. What would he have said about this case? Maybe he would have felt it wasn't duress, it was just under, it was, it was, it was misleading, they had lied to Yeshua, but they didn't actually force him to give the oath. Maybe he feels it's different, but the basic idea... Is the same idea we find in the the same idea we find in the in Rabbi is really in this Gemara, in this Gemara that 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 even if an oath is not binding, you still need to honor it because to avoid any question of Chil Hashem. One final Gemara in which we find this idea, we shown him at least we find this idea is the Gemara talks about King Tzidkiah. The Gemara says that King Tzidkiahu had sworn an oath to Nebuchadnezzar that he would not reveal his secret. His secret was, the Gemara explains, that he had caught him eating a live rabbit, which apparently was a disgraceful thing to do. So the Psukim are not that clear. The Psukim just say that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Tidkiah was moraid, he rebelled against his, uh, he, he, he had pledged himself to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar had made him swear, Hishbio Belokim, and Tidkiah had rebelled. To Kipshuto, I think you would learn, he rebelled means he... He failed to behave as a proper vassal. He, fa- he failed to, uh, to treat Nebuchadnezzar as his liege. But the, the Gemara explains, how did he rebel? Nebuchadnezzar had made him promise not to reveal this embarrassing secret, and Tzidkiyahu revealed it anyway. 
So the Gemara relates the whole story. It says that it says that the Nebuchadnezzar was very upset. He said, "How could Tzidkiyo break his promise and reveal my secret?" So the Gemara says, "Tzidkiyo did a taras nedarim." Nebuchadnezzar heard about it. He went to the Sanhedrin and he said, "Jewish law allows for a taras nedarim. You can just make a promise and then break it." So they told him, "Yes, Judaism says you can be matur nedar. We do it in Erev Rosh Judaism allows for a taras nedarim." So Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was upset. He said that they had, uh, they, they had not followed the halach of a taras nedarim properly. They, it, it had to have been done, it had to have been done in, the, in, in my presence. If it was an oath to me, I should have been there. And basically the, the, the implication is that, that they were wrong. They conceded that they had acted incorrectly and they were punished for this. That the Nebuchadnezzar was right. They had behaved incorrectly. And that, that, and that Taras and Dharam was inappropriate. Some Rishonim learn that Taras and Dharam was actually legitimate, that there was actually grounds for a Taras and Dharam, there were actually grounds for disregarding the halacha of doing it in front of Nuchanetzar, they had the right to do it. But some Rishonim explain that the issue was Chil Hashem, the issue was Nuchanetzar wasn't really going to accept that there was a, that there was a valid Taras and Dharam to, uh, to allow Tzidkiyo to reveal his secret, he was outraged by it. And therefore, even if, according to technical Jewish law, it would, have been, uh, it would have been legitimate to be matur neder, not when you create a chil Hashem. When you create a chil Hashem, even if under the laws of neder, the laws of shvua, you are not obligated to keep it, but if there's going to be any kind of chil Hashem, you can't do it. That's the same idea. That's the same idea we find by the Gevonim, same idea we find in the context of Nebuchadnezzar, and the same idea Rabbi Chassid says in the context of his medieval, medieval nobleman who was only paroling Jews if they would swear to him that they, that they would remain within his jurisdiction. And that's what it says in the Sefer Tar Lashma we mentioned earlier. He says, you, you want to forge a will that, will that will make sure that the estate goes to, the, to those who are, who, are, who are truly the heirs, according to Halacha. In principle, he says, we could justify that. But certainly, he says, not if it will be a Chil Hashem. At the end of the day, Chil Hashem is the most terrible thing, he says. At the end of the day, that uh, certainly we can't possibly allow such a thing if it, will, if it will result in Chil Hashem, and therefore he says, once again, Chil Hashem is connected Kulam, that certainly there's no heter to, uh, to, to, to be unfaithful, to, uh, to not keep your word, to create false wills and, and, and perjure and create false documents, if it will result in Chil Hashem. I didn't see anyone in the context of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim worry that if the Jews wouldn't come back in three days, it would be a Chil Hashem. Maybe again, that's because in the case of Mitzrayim, it was like Rabbi Yaakov Emden, it was just so obvious any, any reasonable person would have understood that the Jews were under no moral obligation whatsoever to, uh, to keep their word to Paro and to promising things in good faith. So perhaps here, that's why most of the Rishonim assumed that there was nothing wrong, with, uh, nothing wrong with, with the Jews not keeping their word. Although again, we did see that there, 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 was, there, there were some uh, dissenting views in the Rishonim. We saw that Bukhar Shar said that Hashem did want them to return so they shouldn't actually, actually break their promise outright and Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar said, it wasn't clear what he meant, but Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar said, chas v'shalom, that they were engaging in Arma, although why he feels it wasn't Arma is not entirely clear.